to you alone. All praise belongs. That is so accurate, Father. Hallowed be your name, treasured, delighted in, exalted above every name, above every treasure, even your own good gifts, would you be exalted above as the great giver. God, would you get all the praise and all the credit and all the honor? Would we be so freed from seeking it ourselves and there would be such a delight from our hearts to you this morning, God, that you, we would be so refreshed by giving you praise. It's, it's how our, our new hearts are wired. There's nothing more refreshing, no water more satisfying than giving you praise. And you have helped us do that this morning. Would you continue to help us now as we look into your word, Father? Lead us, we pray, as our good king and shepherd. In your name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. It is a real delight to be with you here today. As your pastor, my former office mate, uh, has said, it is a real delight. Uh, we love your church a lot. We love your church a lot. And I forget if last time we mentioned this or if Pastor Riv has mentioned this before, but when we were working together, we used to share the same uh, office. Now, you need to realize this office was about the size of your closet, and there was a lot of energy in that room. 90% of it came from your pastor and 10% from mine. We almost shared every conversation, and it was just an incredible way in which God allowed for a short season for our lives to come together, and so thankful for that season. And you need to know that your pastor is a praying man. Uh, he intercedes for me, my family, and dozens of others throughout this whole province, around the globe. I've heard him pray by name, specific people. There's probably two people in the world that I know that pray that much. Your pastor is a praying pastor. That's a good thing. It's very biblical. Uh, the apostles in Acts 6 said that they are to give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word, and your pastor does that. And it's such a joy to be able to come here and be with you as a church family. Our church family is just down the road. Uh, we moved from Brampton to Mississauga recently, and so it is always a delight to go visit cousins and uh, other family members. And so it's a real delight to be with you here this morning. If you have a Bible... Then turn it open to Psalm 131, 131. If you don't have a Bible, there are very sweet, nice people handing out Bibles, and just raise your hand, they'll put a Bible in it. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take it home, it's a gift to you. Uh, I can say that because I'm a visiting pastor, and I have no idea, I just love giving gifts. If there's a guitar up here you like, I don't know. <laughs> take that home, be blessed, read it. Psalm 131. I don't know about you, but there is a lot of uh, noise I find in my life and in my head. 
we just came into the new year. I know we're into February now, but I remember just a few weeks ago, I'm trying to reflect on 2018, what went well, what didn't, what can I learn, and what can be different this year in 2019, and then it gets me thinking about, oh yeah, like we want to do this before the winter ends, but then when spring comes, I want to get ready, make sure there's things ready for the garden, and man, I need to clean the garage, and oh, that I haven't gotten to that in the house yet, and there's all these things starting to stir in my head. I'm really bad at calendar stuff, and so I'm already thinking, like, I need to talk to my wife, Lisa, about what are we doing as a family? Are we going on holidays or not? Are we doing the staycay and trying to figure out things at home? Or, and all of this stuff is kind of rattling in my head. On top of that is just, you know, the relational dynamics that kind of just rattle around as well. You kind of think about that interaction you had with a family member last week, and then that email you got last night, what was that about? And that text this morning, just, you're just kind of still, still trying to think about what was going on there. And then on top of that, there's the own conversation that you have going on in your own head, your own brain, your, all those little conversations you have like, why did you say that, Chris? Why did you open your mouth? That was so silly of you. Why did you say that? Or, Chris, why don't you open your mouth more? You got you to gotta speak up in those situations. Or, oh my goodness, I am the dumbest person in this room. Or, it is very clear, I am the smartest person in this room. <laughs> or, I need to eat less. Or, you need to eat more. Or, you need to, and there's all this stuff, this conversation in your head that's just adding to the layers of noise that's going on and it, it just, it feels like a hurricane. It's like Times Square inside and you can't concentrate. The anxiety is going up. You feel overwhelmed by the noise. It's just swirling and you're kind of looking for the dials of how do you turn this down or at least the switch, maybe turn it off. And Psalm 131 is like finding the dial where we can just turn down the noise of all the things that are going on and turn up the volume on God's voice. I know for me, when things really get rattling around up here, it's hard for me to hear God's voice. Hard for me to remember uh, what I read this morning in the Bible or what I heard on the weekend at church. It's just hard for me because there's so many other things barking and chirping in my head And yet, when we read Psalm 131, it's like finding the dials. So why don't we read this? Uh, Why don't we all stand to read God's word? That's great. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The author of this, you'll notice, is David. He is the author of this song. And it's a part of a group of songs 
that they call the Songs of Ascent. These are songs that would be sung by Jewish worshipers as they ascended up to Jerusalem to the temple of the Lord. And they would sing these songs in order to focus their hearts and kind of set aside all the distractions and all the noise that had been going on in their daily life and they're trying to prepare their hearts for worship as they ascend the hill of the Lord. And David's a great guy to write a psalm like this because if there's anyone who knew noise, it was King David. Uh, David was a king, but a thousand years ago, or when, this, uh, when Jesus was <laughs> alive, it was about 3,000 years ago from us, and he had a very difficult life. There were times where he didn't know where food was coming from, he didn't know where he was going to sleep, he didn't know about shelter, he didn't know if his own family was going to kill him some days. Literally. Talk about noise. Treason was all around him in certain seasons. Some people were flattering him all the time and trying to discern what is going on here. Is that real? Is that legit? Or is that fake? And he writes this song, again, to focus his heart. And the first thing that we see and that we read is that he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised to High. David wants to know that we need to avoid the anxiety of pride. We need to avoid the anxiety, the anxiety of pride. David Powelson just helpfully reminds us. It's almost like we're, we're eavesdropping in on a prayer and a conversation that David is having with God. And he's telling us a couple of things that he's not doing. One of the first things is that he's not being silent. He's praying. That's one of the most obvious things from this is that we actually have this psalm. He's actually praying. He's not keeping it all to himself. He's not keeping it in his own head. He doesn't believe he can juggle it on his own. He's actually praying to God. He's not staying silent. And the other thing he tells us that he's not doing is that his heart is not lifted up or that his eyes are not high. Now, those are just idioms in Hebrew that describe arrogance and pride. If you have a high heart, it means that you have lifted yourself up to the highest position, and your eyes go with it, and they look down on everyone else, including God. And David's saying, I don't have a heart like that. I don't have eyes like that. I don't have a heart and eyes like Satan." Because that's exactly how Satan is described in Ezekiel 28, verse 17, as having a high and haughty, prideful, arrogant heart. Behind it is because what, the reason why it's so high is because he wanted to be God. And this is the very thing that Satan believes is owing to him, that he has exalted his heart so high that he is above God, and he should sit on the throne of God, and he should be God himself. And this is exactly what, if you remember, what he duped Adam and Eve into believing, that you too, you too can be God. Join me up here. And it was a lie. It led to all the sin and the misery and the brokenness that we see. But isn't this what we try, this is, this is exactly what Satan tries to dupe us with every day, even now. You, you too, you can have a high heart. You should be up here. 
You should be up here. And this is what pride does. It is like a black hole. It's like a vacuum. It is constantly sucking things in. It is impossible to be proud and selfish and at the same time loving because it's self-loving. You actually cannot be respectful and honoring of someone else while being proud. You cannot be thankful for anything while you are in pride. And so it's actually anti-love. And this only leads to more and more noise and misery. And it's actually completely contrary to how we were designed as people. We weren't designed to be selfish. We weren't designed to have hearts way up here. We were designed to, have, to lift God up here and acknowledge him that he is there and to enjoy him in that spot. Romans 1, and 25 help us see this and explain how do we get where we are. It says, for although they knew God, that's us, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We think it's so enlightening to get up here, but that's the alleyway of darkness. That's, that leads to pride. It's absolute insanity. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, that's him, who is blessed forever. Amen. We're made to honor God, love God, enjoy God, and acknowledge him as God. That's actually most satisfying for us. And Satan dupes us into thinking that, no, if you switch spots and you try to ascend the hill of the Lord for your own pride and exalt your heart and sit on your own throne as king of your own life, that's going to be most satisfying. And that is a lie. The lie you can boil down to this. The lie is that we think that we're better at being God than God. We're better at being God than God. Satan thinks that. He wants us to think that. That's the opposite of what we should be thinking. That's the opposite of what actually you're designed to be thinking and to even enjoy. We see this in a variety of ways. As soon as we shift our faith away from God, and begin to trust ourselves as God, I've got this, I can do a way better job at being God than God, then I quickly realize, it doesn't take very long, does it, that you can't, and that you're not very good at being God. You're not smart enough, you're not powerful enough, I can only be here, I can't be out there and out there at the same time, and so I have an opportunity to turn and repent and get my heart back in the right spot again, or what can happen is this, is that, again, in my facade of trying to stay God and trying to keep my heart up, I start collecting other toys and trinkets and idols and things around me to help me out, to try to compensate for my weakness in order to get what I want, in order to be really the, the God of my own life. 
And so I can gather lots of different things around me. So say I have lots of noise going on in my head and I'm wanting some comfort. I'm wanting some relief. But for some reason, I'm not God enough to just shut that noise off. And so I need to go get some stuff. I need to go a little Netflix. I need to get some maybe cheesecake. And those things I'm gathering around myself, that's what's going to give me the relief. If I just go to Netflix and numb my mind for a while, that's what's going to really help me out. Or if I just dive into some cheesecake, that's what's really just going to give me the peace and the relief that I'm looking for. Of course, if you've ever gone to Netflix and you go and you're like, this is it, this is what's going to help, and then you go on and for some reason the series has disappeared and you're like, where'd it go? Or you go to open the fridge and you're like, I was positive the cheesecake was right here yesterday. Where did it go? And sometimes it's not there. And sometimes it is. And sometimes you click on Netflix and you're like, sweet, new season. And you just binge watch. And sometimes you open the fridge and you're like, sweet, the whole thing is here. And you eat the whole cheesecake. And then you realize that actually didn't work. I still feel anxious. All the noise is still there post-cheesecake or post-Netflix. And I have an even worse problem now because now I'm, I'm, I've just watched a whole season of Netflix and I didn't sleep and now I've got to go to work and now the noise is even worse and now I've got a horrible stomach ache because I just ate a cow of cheese in this cheesecake and it only leads to the very thing I'm wanting to get away from. Noise, anxiety, misery, the consequences of my sin, of trying to be God. I think it's very important just to ask ourselves, what are the toys and the trinkets that I'm trying to gather around myself to keep this facade up that I'm God? What am I kind of gathering around myself so that I can stay king or queen of my life? It can be really obviously bad stuff. You know, it can be cocaine, it can be porn, it can be different things, or it can be good gifts. Maybe it's schooling. You know, you just got to get that doctorate. Or maybe it's relationships. I just got to be liked by so many people. I I had a friend of mine who prided himself on how many people liked him on Facebook. He was up into the tens of thousands. People he didn't even know, but he felt like he had some electronic friendship with them or something like that. But he, that was the thing that he was leaning on for self-worth and value and significance. What are you gathering around you? that you need to surrender and come off the throne and put God back up and say, God, you, you are the king. I am not. If we don't, Psalm 16 is very clear and warns us that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. There's lots of promises in the Bible. This is one of them. If I choose to stay on that throne and go after other gods, I am only inviting more misery, more sorrow, more pain. This is one expression of pride that David says, I'm, I'm not doing. I'm not lifting up my heart. I'm not, I don't have high eyes and haughty eyes that look down on everyone. No. But there's a second kind of pride that David mentions here in Psalm 131. He says, I also do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's not occupying himself with these things. Now, 
what's he saying here? Is he saying it's, um, it's not really good to learn? It's okay to be fatalistic? Don't ask questions, just go along like a lemming? Or what is he saying? Well, the Bible actually is full of clear instructions to trust God for his help, to learn as much as we can until there isn't any more that we can learn, and to keep trusting God with what still remains unknown and not fight God for more information. Let me say that again. The Bible teaches us that we are to trust God for help to learn as much as we can until there isn't any more that we can learn, and then to keep trusting God in the areas where we don't know what is left. There's still areas of unknownness and not fight God to get more information. This can look like in a lot of different ways. Um, It's anything from what would the world be like if Alexander the Great didn't die in his 30s? Or what would happen if Germany won World War II? Or what would it have been like if I wasn't born in 1978 in Canada, but I was born in 1947 in India during the Great Partition? And I was on the Pakistani side versus the India side of that partition. What would, what would my life be like? I don't know. I, I don't have answers to that. There's those kind of more theoretical questions. But then there's the personal ones. There's the personal ones that we sometimes ask that, why did my sister who never wanted to get married got married, but I've dreamt of being married my whole life and I'm still single? Why? Or why? Why was I given twins, but then one died? Why did this one die and not this one? Why was I given twins at all? Or maybe your question, your question is, why can't I have children at all? Or maybe your question is, why did God wait so long to save me? I mean, there's stuff in my life I wish were not written in my story. Certain chapters I just want to tear out. Why did God wait so long? Why did I have to go through all of that first? Couldn't have God saved me earlier? Why did I have to bury my own child? It's just something inherently wrong. Parents are supposed to outlast their children, right? Why did I have to bury my son? These are questions, real questions that we wrestle with. They're not theoretical anymore. This is real stuff that we are asking and we, we don't have answers to. We don't have enough information on. And I can get to a point where I... Don't know why God has allowed certain things to happen or has withheld certain things from happening. And I begin to wonder, like, isn't it loving of God to communicate to his children? I mean, wouldn't it be more loving if he gave me some answers on this and didn't leave his children in the dark, questioning, confused, doubting? It is very loving to communicate as much as possible, absolutely. But it's also really important for us to know that not all information is equally helpful. Uh, Last year, uh, my wife's father, our kid's grandpa, was in ICU downtown Toronto for weeks on end, touch and go a few times. And we wrestled with how much information do we share with the kids. And if we sat down and just walked through every medical 
report and every CT scan and every conversation that every doctor was telling us, not only would it be overwhelming, sometimes just confusing because they wouldn't understand the information, sometimes it would be scary. It would be too much, too much for them to bear. And so in love, we were trying to figure out how much can we share that would be most loving and most clear. And they really had to come to a point where they just had to trust us as their parents that we were giving them as much information that's going to be best for them, that they could handle. And Jesus, you know, says the same thing in John 16. He says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's so loving of Jesus. He wanted to tell them, but he knew it, it would actually be unloving if I just gave you more information. It would be overwhelming. You couldn't bear it. You couldn't handle it. There were things that we couldn't get our head around before Jesus came. And there's things that we couldn't get our head around until Jesus died and rose again. And there's still things that we don't know until Jesus returns. And when he returns, oh, he'll explain everything. He'll explain everything. He will make sense of your entire story. I got questions about my story. I don't know why certain things happen. Why, why, I I mean, I should have died 27 times growing up on a farm. Why did God let me live? I don't understand. There's a lot of questions I have, but God's going to walk me through all the answers when he comes. When Jesus returns, he's going to explain everything. He's going to connect all the dots that are still not connected for me. I'm very thankful for that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? That we may do all the words of the law. God has given us all we need to walk by faith right now in the midst of our questions, in the midst of the unconnected dots. David knew this reality when he says in Psalm 139, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I I can't attain it. David's trying to describe himself. It's almost like he's sewn into a pocket. He's hemmed in. He can't go to the left. He can't go to the right. He can't go up. He's, He's not really sure what God is doing, but he can't move. But he trusts him because he knows there must be some purpose that God has. All the details and dots are too high for me. But God never changes. And he's trusting in him. But what happens if we want out and we want more information? We want to cut the hem, so to speak. We want to pry into the secret things of God. We want to delve into his secret purposes in my life. And what is he doing? I want answers, and I want them now. And again, when we start doing that, we shift our faith, and we're no longer trusting in God. We're starting to take faith and trust in our own hands and take matters into our own hands. I'm going to get the information I need. The information I deserve. And what happens is my perception of things begins to get distorted because that's what sin does. It really starts poisoning and distorting and twisting everything. And so I can start getting this idea of a twisted justice where, you know, honestly, God, I have been a good Christian. 
I mean, I go to church. I serve and harvest kids of all places. I mean, come on. We're, like, that is intense. I'm coming. I'm giving regularly. And you're still withholding this from me. And there's a sense like God's done us wrong. Like he, he's obligated. Like he's not holding up his half or something like that of the bargain. But this is what sin does. It begins to twist our idea of justice. And we think God has been unfair. Or we begin to trust our own sense of wisdom in a twisted way where we start going into this tunnel of introspection. And it almost, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but we get this idea that if I just keep digging and digging and digging and digging and I'll find, I'll find that sin because if I find that sin, I can confess it and like a formula, all of a sudden the suffering in my life goes away which reveals a lie that I've bitten into is that all pain and suffering in my life is rooted in some sort of personal sin. So if I just keep digging and digging and digging and trying to find that sin, then all my pain and suffering will go away. There's nothing wrong with self-reflection. The scripture tells us that if we are guided by the word, empowered by the spirit, and do that kind of reflection in community, in the church, in this family of faith, that's okay. Sometimes there's ways and times that we need to confess sin and we need help in understanding that. But what I'm talking about here is this isolated, I've got this, I'm just gonna dig and dig and try to go down all by myself. I'm gonna trust my own wisdom, my own keen sense of discernment and I'm gonna find that sin. And I live in this perpetual world of this false guilt and false shame and this legalistic weight on my life that I must, I must be to blame for all the pain in my life. And I just can't find that sin. And this is exactly what sin does in our life. And God is wanting to rescue us from all of this. There's nothing wrong with us asking why. Questions are not a sin. In fact, God says, come and ask all your questions. The Psalms are full of the whys and the how longs and when and where are you, God? That's exactly what we're supposed to do. And when God answers and says yes or no or not yet, we're to trust him. But when we don't and we don't like the answer, that's when we sin. That's when we're like, "Mm -mm, I'm going to get my own answer. That's when we've shifted our faith. This is what David is warning against. And by God's grace, by his spirit, walking in community here, he calls us back and he says, trust me, trust me. And we have to get back to that point where we, like Job, say in Job 42, I have uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God has given us all that we need. He's given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us this community of faith to walk together with. And he says, that's enough for now. That's enough for now. Keep following. Keep following. Come with me. His word says, in Romans 8, 28 and 29, That we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I used to think, 
that the good here that's being described was everything on my calendar, everything I wanted to happen, everything that would result in my own ease and comfort. That's what was good. I quickly realized that wasn't the good. In fact, thankfully, just a good rule in reading your Bible, if you can't understand the one verse, just keep reading. Just keep reading. And in verse 29, it says it defines the good here. The good is to be conformed to the image of his son. Whatever happens in my life, whether it's a joy, whether it's a sorrow, it is all orchestrated to make me like Jesus. And that is the greatest good God could ever do in my life. He is not calling the pain good. He's not calling the circumstance of suffering good. He's calling the fruit or the result of what happens through that and that results out of it good. Because now you're more like Jesus. Not only does this happen, not only is God orchestrating all of my life, all of the dots that I can't even connect at times, working in my life to make me more like Christ, but he actually says those dots and those trials are necessary. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7, Peter says, though now for a little while, these six, seven, eight, nine decades of life, this brief life we have, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why, Peter? So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Not only is he bringing these trials into our life to refine our faith, to make me more like Christ, but that these trials were tailor-made, crafted specifically for Chris or for you. And they were necessary. There was actually no other way that I could have learned that. And I was, I mean, there's a many, I forgot how many times I've said, like, surely I could have watched a YouTube video. I mean, surely there was a book or a blog or something. I could definitely have learned that lesson in another way. This passage says no. If there was another way, God being full of love for his children would Guide me in that way. If more information would help me grow in Christ and maximize the refining of my faith, then he would give it. In his wisdom, he would know it. In his love, he would be compelled to give it. He loves us. But if he knows in his infinite wisdom that that would be too much information, it would actually be crushing for you. In his love, he is compelled to withhold it even though it brings tears in your life. His love restrains that information because it would be too much. He only brings into our life exactly what is necessary, not just helpful, not just beneficial, exactly what is necessary. I love baking. I like eating baking, actually, more than baking. But I'm always amazed when people are in the kitchen and they're baking. It's important to get the right temperature on the oven. 
And it's important not to pull things out too quick or leave them in too long. We need to understand that God, in the crushing heat and refining heat of suffering, his hand is on the oven. He knows exactly what temperature to make the oven. For you, maybe it's 417. But for the other person, it's 436. He knows exactly what temperature to put it. And it never goes too long. Sometimes you're wondering if God's left the kitchen. I mean, I, I am in here. Are you still around? He's never going to pull us out early. He wants to fully bake everything that he is, all the character of Christ in us that he is desiring through that specific trial. What's even more encouraging is that God says, I'm right there in the oven with you. I went through the oven for you. I stand at your side right there with you. Much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there was a fourth man in that furnace. We need to understand he never leaves us nor forsakes us in those trials, in every trial that I have. This is true and mysterious. And Paul recognizes that in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who can figure this all out and exalt his heart so he's got to fill God in on some things? Counsel him a little bit. No one. No one can do that. God has a good plan and good and necessary purposes in all of our life in making us like his son, Jesus. And David says, as we take this posture, I haven't lifted up my heart too high, I haven't lifted up my eyes, I'm not occupying myself and trying to grab more information out of God, I'm gonna take this different posture of humility. And when that happens, he says that we begin to experience the peace that flows from that humility, the peace of humility. He says in verse two, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now David's not talking about you know, his inner child dynamic or anything like that. He's simply making an analogy. He's saying, here, my, my heart, my soul is calm like a baby who doesn't need its mother's milk anymore. I don't know if you've ever heard a baby screaming when it's super hungry and all it wants is milk and wants it now and it sees its mom. And then you start hearing super lungs, like it is intense wailing. If you need a refresher, I'm sure you can do that in the nursery just after the service. You can kind of swing by and just, just remember that ear piercing, I can't take that, scream. And what Tim Keller says is so helpful. He says, a nursing child held by its mother is highly aware of the milk she can offer and will squirm and cry if denied. A child who has been weaned, however, and no longer nurses is content just to be with its mother, enjoying her closeness and love without wanting anything else. David says, my heart's like that. It's been weaned because being weaned is actually being free. Free from the idea that you need milk more than 
the mom, that you need something more than someone, that you need God's gifts more than the giver. And when we get to the point where you would rather just have God more than all of his gifts, there is freedom. There is peace in that posture. This is what David is calling us to. Do you ever get to that point where you just want to be with God? Do you ever get to the point where you just want to go somewhere, kind of get away from the noise? I just need to, maybe it's your basement, maybe it's the furnace room. For me, it's the electrical room. It's the, it is a very, very small spot where there's an electric panel. That's the only spot. I can just kind of get away, shut the door, get on my knees. I just want to be with God. Or do you find that the only times you go to God is when you need something? Is God more of a vending machine for you? You kind of pop a couple of coins of prayer in and expect some some stuff to drop. Maybe give it a kick if you don't see anything coming yet. Shake it a little bit. We are to come to God with our prayers and with all of our requests and supplications. Absolutely. But is that all you go to God for? Is there ever a time where you just want God? Like a baby just wanting to sit in his mother's lap and just enjoy mom for mom? If not, what is it that you'd rather have? Remember what we were talking about idols? Sometimes good things that have become ultimate things and now have become bad things. That's a good indication. If I, just, if I, if I could just have this, well, that would be way better than God. God, can you help me get this? God, can you help me get my idol? If my prayers are sounding like that, then just talk to God about that. Just be able to confess that to the Lord and get in that right posture and position again. I want to be able to get to a spot where I'm calming and quieting my heart in his presence, where I would just, if I could just have God, that would be enough. And I remember, uh, this is a couple of months ago, I don't know if you remember this, Pastor Ray, but I was talking with your pastor on the phone as we do almost every week, and he reminded me that this just doesn't happen automatically. This isn't just something that happens passively. We have to learn, learn how to calm and quiet our soul. This is exactly what Paul says, actually, in Philippians 4, verse 11. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content, to be quieted, to be calm in God's presence. He learned it. He was training his soul in it. This takes intentional, active, proactive thinking and a plan of what's going to happen. And God will always be orchestrating opportunities for us to Feel what it's, not, what it's not like to have a calm and quieted soul. And so he's giving us an opportunity now. He's like, here's the opportunity. I'm right here with you. Here's the opportunity. Let's, let's keep growing in this. What does it look like to calm and quiet my soul? And if I could suggest two practical ways to learn how to do this, one would be fast and pray. Fast and pray. Fasting is simply giving up something like food in order to spend more time with God. The time that I would typically carve out for this, whether it's social media or whether it's 
uh, eating or whatever it is. I'm going to take that time, and now I'm going to spend it on God. And when I do that, what I'm actually saying is that I'd rather have God than this. And they start switching spots where God actually becomes the priority, and this isn't anymore. And at first, sometimes it's really hard. I don't know if you've ever done fasting, but at first you're just like, oh my goodness, why did I commit to this? This is so hard. It's just, but what's happening is that you're actually changing your taste buds so that as you fast and you gain uh, an appetite for God, he changes your taste buds so you can taste and see that the Lord is good and better and more satisfying than anything else. If you find something very, very hard to fast from, perhaps it has too high of a place in your life. So fast and pray. This isn't something for just super Christians. This is something for just Christians. All the, all the kids in, in the family. Jesus assumed, he said, when you fast, he was saying that to all of his disciples. And so this is something I, this is a, a way of life. This isn't kind of like a special little endeavor for 2019. But begin to think and pray. What would it look like to weave fasting and praying into my life so that my heart is constantly growing in its quieted and calm position in God. And nothing else is pulling me in different directions. Nothing else is getting too high in my life where God is kind of left here. Fasting helps us keep him up here. Here's another one. Not only can we fast and pray, we can cast and pray. Cast and pray. First Peter helps us understand this a little bit more of what this is. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I remember looking at this passage once and realizing God's commanding me to be humble. How do I humble myself? You just can't go around and go, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. You, that doesn't work. Again, just, let's just keep reading. Humble yourselves, therefore. How? By casting. Casting is how we humble ourselves. To keep holding on to everything, every concern and care that I have is actually a posture of pride. I've got this. I've got this. I'm smart enough. I'm strong enough. There's no reason for me to dump all this on God. I've got this. I'm going to put this on my back. And, and you just get way down. Maybe the odd thing you'll throw on God, but the rest of the stuff, you got it. That's pride. God is saying, I know how I made you. You weren't meant to carry these concerns and cares. Cast them all. Cast them all on me. Don't leave one in your hand. Cast them all into these arms, these everlasting arms, he says in Deuteronomy. These very arms that carry you from day to day, cast them. Humble yourself and say, I can't, God, but you can. Would you take care of this in my family? Would you take care of the situation at work and my neighbor? And you're casting and casting. And you do it in the morning. And when something else pops in your brain at 10 a.m., cast it. And at lunchtime, cast it. Cast it all day. And when you get home and when your head is just getting to the pillow, cast it. Cast it all on the Lord, because he cares for you. David knew what it was like 
to do this as well, calming and quieting his soul. And when he did, he was able to experience that peace. And so that's why the last verse, verse 3, he calls out after this conversation that he's having with God that we've been eavesdropping in on. He now turns to all of us and says, oh, Israel, he was the king of Israel, and he calls all of God's people now, you all hope in the Lord. Do what I'm doing. He wants us, lastly, to know the joy of hope. He wants us to know the joy of hope. Hope here, when he's saying hope in the Lord, is almost being used like trust or believe. Trust in him. Believe in him. Hope in him. Hope not like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today or I hope it doesn't blizzard today. It's not a, oh, I don't know what's going to happen, hope. It's a, it's a certain hope that I just don't see yet. It's an unseen guarantee. Hope in God. Trust in him. That's the call that he has for us. That's what David was calling the whole nation of Israel to. But as we know, uh, Israel didn't do that. In their history and story, they didn't hope and trust in God. Just like we don't. Except one. Except one person did, one Israelite did, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who says and comes in John 14, 31 and says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He perfectly hoped in God, perfectly trusted in God. And just so that we don't get this idea that it was kind of this, you know, cakewalk for Jesus, just kind of stoically going through life, trusting the Father, not feeling any pain, that's the opposite of his experience. 1 Peter 2 and chapter 4 says, when he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. Have you been reviled? When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, that's the Father, who judges justly. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Sometimes there's just pain in our life because God has brought it. it hasn't been, it's not because of my personal sin. It's not because of anything like that. It's because God, in his mysterious love, is loving me. He's creating a, a context for me to grow in faith in likeness. Anyone, anyone, for those who are suffering according to God's will, you also entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Hebrews 5 goes on with this idea. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus, so during his time here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Stoically? No. With loud cries and tears. Have you ever been in that spot? We're just pouring your heart out to God. You're so broken. There's so much pain. It's so foggy. It's so dark. You don't know the way forward. You're crying out to God. And he was crying with tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, all those who follow. You know, sometimes I'm thinking, if I'm saved, it means I'm a part of the family of God. Why would God treat his kids like this? It's because he's treating you exactly like he treated his own son. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. Walk in my steps. 
So he has won in a salvation for us. And it was intensely hard. Jesus constantly labored to quiet and calm his soul throughout his life, which was an increasing crescendo of suffering. He was known as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And it got super messy right at the end, right in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before the cross of Christ, where he falls to the ground on his knees, sweating drops of blood, and prays, Luke twenty two forty two, 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His eyes were on the Father. Even at that moment. And it's good for us to cast our cares on him. So God, would you, would you do this, please? Would you do this, please? But my greatest request in all of these things is that your will would be done because I believe you actually are able to connect all the dots. You know what's best. You have all the information. I don't even know what's best for me. You do. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Hebrews 12, we get a picture of what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane. Jesus instructs us and says, Lay aside every weight, believer, and the sin which clings so closely. Lay it all aside and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking where? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus as he walked to the cross? It was the Father. As we, said, as we even read from Luke 22, it was the Father. He was looking to the Father. That was the joy that was set before him. And now Jesus says, do the same. Do the same as you run the race that's marked out for you. No matter what kind of stage of the marathon you're in, look right here. Lock your eyes in on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Fix your eyes on him. Just the same thing that Jesus did with his father. Do that with Jesus. And in so doing, we are able to calm and quiet our hearts as we lock eyes on Jesus. When Peter stepped out of the boat and his eyes were locked in on Jesus, he was walking toward him on water. Crazy stuff. And then his eyes got off of Jesus, started looking at the waves, started looking at the wind, and he started to sink. And Jesus grabs him. We need to keep our eyes locked in on Jesus. And when we do that, when we fix our eyes on Christ, we begin to calm and quiet our soul. From trial to trial, we train our hearts to be calm and quieted, no matter what noise and hurricane is going on around us. Let me close by giving you four things I've already kind of mentioned. I just want to make really clear. Four ways we can practically fix our eyes on Jesus. The first is this. Hope in his unchanging character. That's what Jesus was doing. He was trusting in the character of God. Romans 15:13 says, "May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope." 
Believe that he's the God of hope. Believe that he is with you. Believe that he's a God who is just and loving and merciful and kind. Believe in the unchanging character of God that your heart may abound in hope. Next, hope in his unfailing promises. He speaks out of his character and he gives us crazy, great, and precious promises. 2 Peter 1.4 says, He's granted to us his precious and very great promises. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. All of these astounding promises he gives us as his children. Lean on them. They're not a, a broken cane that'll give way. They're like solid granite around you that you can lean on and walk on securely. Hope in his unfailing promises. Second, third, hope in his unfading salvation. His unfading salvation. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1 verse 4. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. When you're in the midst of a storm, it's hard to see stars or any break in the clouds. But Peter says, remember, this isn't all that there is. There's something beyond. There's an inheritance that as a child of God is coming to you. A whole new heavens and earth that is coming where there is no pain, there is no suffering. And that inheritance you can't lose. It doesn't rust or rot. Worms and mice don't chew it up. It's going to be secure. Keep that eternal perspective. This isn't all that it is. This too will pass. This that's coming will never. It's coming Hope, even now, this is a secure inheritance, an unfading salvation. Lastly, not only do we hope in his character, his promises, and his salvation, but we also hope in his unswerving plan. This is where it gets hard. The unswerving plan that God has for us. The race that has already been marked out for us. When If you ever watch the Tour de France, they're not just making it up as they go. The whole race is mapped out for them. God knows every step of the course he has in your life. Your life, your life, your life, your life, my life, all of our lives. He knows every detail. Don't get lost in the landscape. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's going to guide us. I'm going to jump halfway down here in this passage in Hebrews 12. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Sometimes when I go through a trial, I begin to wonder, I don't even know if I'm on God's radar. I mean, maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm not even saved. Maybe I'm not a child of God. That's what pain and suffering can do. It can make things really foggy. But the Bible reminds us, no, 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 you are a child of God. This is actually evidence that you're in the family. This is how he treats his kids. So they become more like Jesus. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? For in the moment, all discipline seems painful, for sure, rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's plan. In all that we experience in life, every trial and suffering, every joy and pleasure, everything is meant to refine us that we might grow in Christ. And everything is necessary for that purpose. And so what we want to do is keep our eyes locked on Jesus so that our hearts may be calmed and quieted through every trial, at every stage of the race, 
all the way to the end. Church, hope in God. Hope in your God. He is so good, and he is with us the whole race. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. But this is true. This isn't just make-believe. This isn't some sort of fictional narrative. But you have actually said this repeatedly in your holy word. So we praise you, O God, that you really are that kind of a God. And your promises are really that good. And the future inheritance and salvation that waits for us is really that unfading. And the current plan that you have for us right now is really that necessary and detailed to make us like Christ. Father, we surrender to you. Lord, we cannot connect all the dots. There's many here this morning that are walking in with loose ends and chapters that just seem they would rather not have in their own story. Dots they haven't connected, questions that don't have answers. God, I pray you would help each one to surrender to you, to trust you and your purposes and plans. And God, would you help us to quiet our souls in you now? We trust you. All we need is you. All we need is you for another day to take that next step of faith in this race marked out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.